Welcome to the second season of the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. This is the podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. I'm your host, Sarah Cunningham, and in today's episode, we'll gain practical, science-based tips for how we can harness our inner critic and turn it into our inner coach. Just before I introduce today's guest, I'm absolutely delighted to announce that we have a new sponsor for this season of the Working on Wellbeing podcast, S&P Global. The world's leading organizations rely on S&P Global for the essential intelligence they need to make confident decisions. S&P Global, powering global markets. And speaking about confident decisions, I couldn't be happier to introduce today's guest, Professor Ethan Cross. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling our conscious minds. He is an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan, and his pioneering research has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review, the New Yorker. I mean, the list goes on. But, you know, Ethan particularly struck me when I read his wonderful book, um, best-selling author of Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and How to Harness It. Ethan, you are so welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation for for several weeks. Um, So just delighted to be here. Love the work that you're doing and um, looking forward to chatting. Oh, thank you so much. Well, Ethan... I thought we'd start by asking you to explain what Chatter is, and I'd love to know how you came to be one of the world's leading experts in this field. Um, those are great questions. So let me, why don't I start by um, telling you a little bit about how I got interested in this topic of Chatter, um, because it, it, I think that's the kind of origin story you're asking about, and then I'll get to the definition as I tell that story, for me, I've been studying this this issue of chatter, this mental noise, if you will, for about 20 years professionally, but I've been thinking about it for closer to 40. And for folks who may not be watching, but instead tuning in, I'm not act, I'm not super old. So, um, so I've been thinking about it since the time I'm three years old. Uh, basically, I had a, a, a pretty unconventional dad. I tell this story in my book who, on the one hand, my dad didn't graduate from college, um, held a a series of jobs over the course of his life, didn't really ever have a career, Um, loved watching the Yankees, Uh, was a New Yorker with a giant, big, bushy mustache, filthy, potty mouth when he drove around Brooklyn. Uh, So on the one hand, he's kind of gruff, but on the other hand, in his spare time, he loved reading about Eastern philosophy, Hinduism and Buddhism. And when he wasn't reading about that work, he was often talking to me about it really from the time I was a little kid. And one of the first lessons I remember him teaching me was whenever you experience something challenging, you get into an argument with me or mom or or me or or something bad happens with your friends, just go inside and, and, and tap into that, tap into your, that voice inside and, and, and try to find the kernel of truth. And so essentially what he was asking me to do was 
engage my inner voice, this this kind of sense of intuition. And when I was three years old, I quite frankly had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, I would roll my eyes all the time because I felt I felt it to be I found it to be quite embarrassing that this is all he would talk about. But as I think so many of us know, the messages that our parents give us, even when we don't like to listen to them at the time, they, they have a way of penetrating into our minds. And, and that message from my dad really did seep in. So as I got older and I experienced different kinds of adversity, nothing major, but arguments or rejections and things of that sort, I would do what he said. I would I'd turn my attention inward try to make sense of what was happening. I'd ask, well, what's going on? Why Why am I feeling this way? I'd try to come up with a, a solution to my problems and then move on. And I was really good at doing that. So I never really got stuck when I experienced problems. I would I was able to deal with them and, and move forward. Then I got to college. I took my first psychology class during my freshman year. And halfway through the semester, we got to the topic of introspection, the science of turning your attention inward. And one of the first things we learned in that class was this capacity to use your mind to silently engage, process verbal reasoning to work through problems, this is a superpower that we possess. This is what allows us to innovate, to create, to problem solve. This is, this is how we build spaceships that blast us off to Mars and land vehicles there, which are now roaming around, right? So on the one hand, I'm thinking, all right, dad was right. But then we get a little further into the class, and what I also learn is this very same capacity is one of the, the great vulnerabilities we, we face as a species because a lot of the time people experience a problem. There's, there's something that they're worried about or sad about or angry about. They turn their attention inward to make sense of that situation, but they don't come up with a clear solution. Instead, they just start spinning over and over and over again. That spinning is, is what I call chatter. It's getting stuck in a negative thought loop about a problem. And I, I genuinely think it is one of the, the big problems we face as a species. Um, and I say that not to be hyperbolic. I say it based on what I know of the data. Because if you look at what happens when we get lost in chatter, it powerfully undermines our ability to think and perform. It creates friction in our relationships with other people. And it doesn't just lead us to feel bad subjectively, which is quite awful enough, but it also seeps into our skin in ways that lead to physical damage over time in ways that maybe we'll talk about. So as a freshman, I found this all to be just unbelievably mind-blowing. Like we have a tool, sometimes it works for us really well, this ability to introspect, but other times it backfires. And so I went to, to graduate school to learn how to use the tools of science and psychology and neuroscience to try to figure out why does this happen? And most importantly, what can we do about it? When we find ourselves succumbing to chatter, what are the, what are the tools that exist that we can bring to bear to not get rid of our capacity to introspect, to not silence our quote unquote inner voice, but to allow people to harness it as a as a tool for good. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Amazing. And I love that you call it a superpower because, of course, all of our strengths are in some ways double-edged swords. Um, and yes. I have to say, I'm somebody who has uh, 
definitely battled with chatter, with that sort of inner self-critic for, for many, many years. So when I originally read your book, it really resonated with me. And what I loved about it was exactly what you've said. You provided actionable, practical tools that each and every one of us can integrate into our day-to-day -day lives. And I'm really excited for you to share those tools with our audience today. But many of our audience will be sort of a, a corporate audience. Many are in different levels uh, within the workplace, people managers, early stage career. And of course, it can be really difficult if we're having a really busy day. It's a stressful day. We've lots of meetings and our inner chatter is on fire. So I would love to know what are the top one or two tools that you have when we're on the go, when we need to quickly recognize that our chatter is hijacking us and find a way to tame that in the moment? Well, for, I love the fact that you're using the word tools, plural, because oftentimes the question I get is, what's what's the what's the top tool for taming chatter and whenever i get that question it's it's a really it's a hard question for me to get i have to take a deep breath because what we know is there are no single one size fits all solutions that work for all people in all situations instead what we know is that our chatter can come in all different forms right depending on the situations we're in depending on who we are for some people it can manifest as a as a nagging inner critic for other people it can be an annoying inner a hole for other people it can just be a depressogenic stream that just doesn't let up and the good news is we've got dozens literally dozens of science-based tools that we can use to manage those different manifestations of our chatter. I say science-based because I think that's really important. Um, one of the things I tried to do in my book is, is shoot down some myths that are out there that, um, that characterize you know, stories that are out there that tell us how to engage with our chatter that aren't actually grounded in science and can sometimes do more harm than good. So, um, so everything we'll talk about is science-based. But without further ado, let me tell you, let me answer your question. So I like to, let me start by giving you a framework, the framework that I use to think about where to find these different tools. And then I'll give you some examples. I like to divide the world into three, three categories. There are tools you can use on your own to manage your chatter. Then there are people tools or relationship tools, ways of harnessing your relationships with other people to help you. And then there are environmental tools. So actual tools that you could find in your physical spaces that can help you as well. The two things that I do uh, immediately when I detect any chatter brewing in my life are tools that come from that first bucket, things I can do on my own. The first thing I do is I... And just bear with me here. This may sound a little wacky, but I will break it down scientifically. Uh, I do something called distanced self-talk. So I will try to give myself the advice that I would give a best friend, but I'll I'll use language to help me do that. And what I mean by that is I'll actually use my own name to think through a problem. I'll say to myself, silently, mind you, uh, Ethan, how are you going to deal with the situation? When I use my name and the second person pronoun you, what that's effectively doing is it's shifting my perspective. It's getting me to relate to myself as I would someone else. Because the word you is a word that we virtually exclusively use when we think about and refer to other people, right? You is like pointing, it's the verbal equivalent of pointing a finger at someone else. So when you use that word to address yourself, 
it's it's getting you to think about yourself like you were someone else. Now, why is that helpful when it comes to chatter? It's helpful because one of the things we know about human beings is it is much easier for us to give advice to other people and to think objectively about their circumstances than it is for us to do that for ourselves. When you have some psychological distance from the situation, you can think much more objectively. There's even a name for this phenomenon. We call it Solomon's Paradox. Uh, this is named after the Bible's King Solomon, who many listeners will will automatically equate with the concept of wisdom. He's known to be probably the most famous person in history for being wise. Yet if you dig into his life, what you learn is Solomon was really wise when making judgments about other people's problems. But when it came to his own life, he made a, a slew of terrible decisions, which actually contributed to his kingdom's demise. This is not just true of Solomon. Abraham Lincoln did the same thing, and we all do to varying degrees. So distant self-talk plays on that mechanism, makes it much easier for us to reason soundly and objectively about our problems when we find ourselves in the thick of things. And the best part about this tool is it is remarkably easy to use. So not all of the chatter tools that are out there are are easy, and that's not a problem. Sometimes we have energy and resources to do more effortful things, but sometimes we don't. So if it's if I'm about to go on stage to give a big presentation and I find that inner inner critic chirping away, I can't always afford to do ten minutes of of pranayama, deep breathing exercises, or meditation, right? I can't necessarily write in my journal. But I can say to myself, Ethan, here's what you're going to do, man. You're going to do it, and so forth and so on. And I do that. So distant self-talk. Use your name and the second person pronoun you to try to work through a problem. One caveat is if you do this, um, if well, do it silently if you're in a public setting. So you don't want to do it out loud in a public space because that violates social norms. Some people do find it useful to talk to themselves out loud. If that's you, make use of technology and pop a pair of um, earbuds in your ears to make it look like you're talking to someone else. But but all of the research on this has actually dealt with silently using this tool. So you can just do it internally. That really resonated with me, actually, because I realized that I do it unconsciously. And I do it when I'm playing table tennis, of all things. So if I'm losing in table tennis, I find myself going, come on, Sarah. Um, and I think maybe yeah. people in sport that might resonate, not that I'm terribly sporty, but um, I, I do find it sort of re-engages me. So I, I really, really resonated with that. I, and you have so many tools in this book, by the way, which is really exciting. There was another one, though, that really resonated with me. And, and I'm kind of hoping you might talk about this one, because if anybody's listened to any of the previous podcasts in series one, they'll know that I have a slight obsession with time travel. But I've actually never met anybody who's able to time travel until now. But I believe that you may have cracked it. You may have figured out how to time travel and how that might be able to help us tame our inner critic. I wonder if you might talk about that a little bit. Yes, we have cracked the puzzle of time travel. <clears throat> you don't just need a DeLorean, if you get that reference to Back to the Future. Um, um, so what let's 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 start with the concept of mental time travel. We actually talk a lot um in modern day times about about 
our our tendency to go into the past in our minds versus traveling into the future. And that's what I would talk about as mental time travel. It's in your mind, transporting yourself away from the moment, right? Simulating, imagining something that's going to happen in the future, going back into the past. Um, When I think about the way we talk about that, usually we talk about mental time travel right now is a bad thing. So I think for a long time, we've now heard the importance of being in the moment. So we should really strive to be in the moment as much as possible all the time. I think there is great value that we derive from being in the moment. Um, And I think the meditative philosophies that espouse that idea have a ton of data behind them. I've been meditating on and off uh, throughout my life. So I'm I'm a supporter. However, I do think that something has gotten lost in translation when we talk about being in the moment. Because number one, if your goal is to always be in the moment, you are bound to fail. Because um, we have evolved to, to not be in the moment. And this is actually an advantage that we possess compared to other species. There are species that are always in the moment, they tend to have many more appendages than we do, and usually like long antennae. I'm talking about like insects, cockroaches, spiders. They're navigating the world on a moment-to-moment basis, looking for rewards, staying away from punishments. We have this like incredibly large and sophisticated, wrinkly mass of tissue that sits beneath our skull, called our brain with our prefrontal cortex, that allows us to move beyond the moment. And it lets us pause to think about the remarkable things that being able to travel in time in our minds lets us do. I've got a day of long meetings ahead of me. I can think about what the weekend is gonna look like. I can imagine my next vacation with my family and what that's gonna be like. I can try to plan for what my research is gonna do over the next few days, weeks, months, and years. My ability to simulate and plan is, I would argue, that capacity is one of the bases for our, for us as a species to be so successful. I can also go back in time. I can learn from my mistakes. Oh, I flubbed that presentation. Hmm, what did I do wrong? Let me try to improve it. I can, when in a moment of, of weakness or negativity, I could think back to the vacation my family took a couple of weeks ago and the time we spent all together and how wonderful that was. So it is true that sometimes you go back in time and you get stuck, you ruminate or you go into the future and you start worrying. But those are just those are just like isolated examples of mental time travel backfiring. In general, it can be a very useful thing. Here's how you can use mental time travel to your benefit when you're struggling with chatter. So um, I I tend to use this for one of the most pernicious forms of chatter that I experience, which I call Ethan's 2 a.m. chatter. And what I mean by that is every four to six weeks, I will wake up at 2 a.m. and I'm just wide awake and it's bad, right? Something has happened. I lose my job, the family crumbles, next thing I know, it's over. And this all happens in a matter of seconds. And it's the middle of the night. What am I supposed to do, right? How am I going to go back to bed? When that happens, and by the way, I'm not alone in having that kind of 
chatter. Oh, you're not allowed. <laughs> okay. I was waiting for that one. I was waiting for that. Um, it's actually chatter in the middle of the night is a very common, common experience. Um, I will, I will simply ask myself, how are you going to feel tomorrow morning about this? How are you going to feel next week about this? No matter how bad the chatter is in that, in that moment, and sometimes it can be bad at 2 a.m., mm. it is always better the next day or the next week when I have full capacity to use my mind to work through the problem. All of our emotions, they, they, there's a natural time course that characterizes them. They get triggered, but then as time goes on, they eventually subside, they wane. Time does tend to heal most of our experiences, few exceptions by certain kinds of trauma, but most of those experiences do heal with time. When you are in the midst of experiencing chatter, you lose sight of that property of your of your of your emotions. And what the research shows is simply reminding yourself that what you're going through is temporary, it'll eventually pass. This does something really valuable for a mind stuck in chatter. It 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 gives it gives that mind hope. And hope is a powerful tool for turning the volume down in our chatter. So that's that's another thing I'll do. I'll do, sometimes I'll even combine distant self-talk and mental time travel. I'll say to myself, Ethan, how are you going to feel about this tomorrow morning? And, 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 you know, that doesn't make the chatter, it doesn't turn it off completely. What it does is it turns the volume down on it, which reduces its dysfunction, letting me to get back to what I need to do. So that's a second thing I do. I mean, I, I find that incredibly helpful um, because, yes, you're definitely not alone. I've definitely been been hijacked by the 2 a.m. Uh, chatter more times than I like to I, I like to admit. Um, but I really like that because, of course, we've heard that phrase, this too will pass. But it's really actually focusing on that phrase, isn't it? And it's it's not just saying this too will pass, but it's actually imagining, you know, as you say, how will this be a week from now, a month from now, a, a year from now? I should say another quick little tip, which is not science-based, but which is my own tip when my chatter hijacks me at 2 a.m., is I love listening to audiobooks. And I also have your book on audio, and I have listened to that during my 2 a.m. hijacks as well. Um, now, at the beginning of the conversation, you said that the sort of three categories of tools. And I mean, there's over 20 tools in your book, but the first category is tools that we can do on ourselves. The second category is tools that we can do on others. And um, before we go to tools that we can do to support others or that others can do to support us, were there any other tools that we can use on ourselves in the moment that you wanted to share? Oh, there are so many. Um, I mean, that category probably has the most. So you don't want me to go through all of them because I'll have to speak so quick you won't be able to understand me. But I, I will share one other tool that um, that I do use that I'll, I'll share because it, it always amazes me because it's so out of character for me. This tool, uh, I will, I will. Um, so whenever I've it, throughout my life, whenever I've experienced a little bit of chatter, I would organize and clean up my spaces. And I say this is odd for me because anyone who knows me knows that I'm a very clean person, but in terms of like order, I'm the kind of guy at home who, you know, drives my wife crazy because there's usually a trail of clothing from the shower to the closet to the, you know, in my my office there are piles of books and it just doesn't it never bothers me. I'm 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 losing fans as I speak. I can sense it. Um but but so here's the thing. But when I experience chatter, I'll start putting all of my 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 stuff away. 
And then when I'm done with like organizing my spaces, then I'll go to the kitchen and I'll make sure it's spick and span. And then after that, I'll even quite masochistically, I might add, go into my children's room and start putting their stuff away. So what the hell is going on here? What I'm doing is something that, again, many people do without thinking. They clean and organize when they're experiencing some distress, some chatter. And research shows that that can help us. The way it helps us is as follows. And I find this just so remarkably interesting. When we're experiencing chatter, we often don't feel like we have control over what is happening in our minds, right? Because if we had control, we wouldn't be in that state because it's so aversive. The thoughts and the, the, that inner critic and the, 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 the anxiety, the anger, this, it's all taken over. We're not in the driver's seat. We don't like that because what another thing we know about human beings is we're all, to use the technical term, control freaks. We love knowing that the world is orderly and predictable, that we have control over it. When you start organizing your spaces, that's something you have control over. So you're compensating for the lack of control you ha you feel in your mind by exerting control around you. And that, that enhances our sense of agency, emp empowers us, and also helps us manage a chatter. So those are all a few very simple things that I do that's like my first line of defense against chatter. And I would say 75, 80% of the time, that's it. That's all I need to do to snuff the chatter out. But in other situations, when the chatter may be more intense, maybe it's surrounding an issue at work that is more consequential, what I'll then do is I'll layer in other, other tools. I'll go to some of those other categories I mentioned and, um, and, and, and use those to, to help moderate the response. Amazing. Well, I feel like I need to go home and tidy my living room because it's a bit a bit cluttered <laughs> at the moment. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that we get quite a few people listening who might be people managers or, you know, are, are wondering how they can perform better in the workplace. And I'm such a big believer in supporting each other in the workplace, supporting our colleagues, peer mentors. And there was one piece of advice that really jumped out to me of your book, and it was this idea of a chatter advisor. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, no, I think this is um, a really important topic to discuss, particularly for organizational context. Um, I interact with those quite a bit. I have, uh, I'm in the business school here as well, and you know, it's interesting. There's this, there's this myth that in the business world, it's as though when we go to work, we just don't have emotions anymore, right? We don't have to talk about our emotions, but of course, anyone who lives and breathes knows that that is not true. And you know our ability to manage our 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 chatter at work is vitally important. So let's talk about the chatter board of advisors and chatter advisors. Um, to introduce it, I want to tackle a myth that I think is a pretty pernicious one about the way in which other people factor into our lives when it comes to chatter. There's this been this idea floating around for thousands of years goes back to Aristotle, that when we're struggling with a problem, what we need to do is just get it out, vent the problem, talk about it, don't keep it bottled up inside. Aristotle was the first on record to promote this idea. And um, Freud ran with it after, and it's been in vogue ever since. There's been a lot of research on this. And what we have learned is the following. Simply venting your emotions 
does not help you work through your chatter. I'm going to repeat that again because I think it is so important. Simply venting doesn't help us work through our chatter. Venting your emotions to someone else or just letting it out, talking about it, what happened, what you felt, that is good for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between two people. It's good to know that there are people out there who are willing to take the time to listen to me, to empathize with me, um, to, sh- to, to convey that they have my back, so to speak. The problem is if all you do is vent in a conversation, you often leave that conversation just as upset, if not more upset than when you started because you haven't done anything in the conversation to work through the actual problem. The formula for getting good support from other people involves doing two things. You want to find someone who first takes the time to listen and hear you out. It is important for them to learn what you're going through. So talking a little bit initially is helpful. But then at a certain point in the conversation, that person starts switching from just listening to to starting to work through to to work with you to try to work through the problem, to give you advice, to maybe ask you what you think, to look at that bigger picture. That is a formula for getting good chatter support. First, talking to someone who listens, but then helps you broaden your perspective. Now, when I do workshops with people on these topics, I do a simple exercise. Before I tell them anything that I've just told you, I have them list out all the people they talk to about their problems at personal problems and work-related problems. And then after I go through the science that we just talked about, I say, okay, now I want you to go back and I want you to circle the names of the people who do both of the things I just described. They not only listen, but they also help broaden your perspective. They help you work through that problem. Inevitably, people circle only a minority of those names. Those names that they circle, that's the beginnings of their chatter board of advisors. Those are the people you want to go to, to get chatter support. For the other people on that list, people who, quite frankly, sometimes we are exceptionally close to, like there are many people in my life, I'm exceptionally close to them. Like DNA determines those connections if you want to read between the lines. I don't choose to talk to them about my chatter because I I know they want to help, but all they end up doing is getting me, they just get me to vent and that doesn't help the situation. So, so for the folks who aren't naturally skilled at being a good chatter advisor, you've got two options. Option one, don't talk to them about your chatter. Talk to them about the kids and talk to them about sports and restaurants, but just don't go there. And that's okay. Option two is to is to figure out how to educate them about how this works because we do know that this is teachable. Everyone can become a better chatter advisor. So that's the little nugget on on chatter advising. So that I love the fact that it's teachable because one of the things that I've always felt is really difficult is when somebody first steps into that role of people manager, it's really overwhelming. They might be a brilliant accountant or a brilliant software engineer, but they don't have a PhD in psychology like you do. And actually, people are terribly complex. And we want to support, we want to support our colleagues. We want to support, you know, those who are sort of reporting into us. Um, I would love to learn your tips for how to become a good chatter advisor. 
Well, so step one is learning about these different phases of the process. And it is quite simple in terms of breaking it down into those. Um, step one is, is listening, actively, empathically connecting, trying to validate the other person, show that there's a connection. And then step two is working with them to try to help broaden their perspective so they could come to some um, insight into how to solve the problem. Now, within those two steps, of course, there are multiple things you can do. Um, and there is an art to doing this well. By art, I mean, depending on the person and what they're struggling with, some people are going to need to spend more time just talking before they're ready to transition into that next phase of having their perspective be brought. We know that the more intense the problem is, um, the more significant it is in the person's life, typically the more time they need to spend in that first phase of just talking before they're receptive to having their perspective be broadened. So um, if it's not clear when to make that transition, the advice I like to give people is to ask. And I will say that um, I do this all the time with my friends and, and family. Sometimes my wife will come to me with a problem. Hey, I got to talk to you about something. Of course, what's going on? And she starts talking and I'm there and I'm engaged and I some, I'll sense my opening and I'll say, I totally get it. I, I have a thought, like, can I share? Yeah. And sometimes she'll say, please, yes, what do you think? And I tell her, uh, in other cases, she'll say, no, I just need to, to talk. I'm not ready to do it. And then I step back, I listen and I try again. So th that is part of the artistry. Um, once you get into that advice mode or perspective broadening mode. There are lots of ways you could do that. Um, one thing you could do is you could throw it back to the individual. So what do you th how have you dealt with search, you know, this kind of situation in the past? Or like, what would you, if I was going through this, what would you tell me? You can share from your own experiences. You know, actually I know someone who went through this or I have. So there are a couple of different ways you could get in there to help broaden their perspective once you're there. But um, the big picture take home here is that this is eminently uh teachable. I think this should be taught much earlier on in life. We are doing research now with, with kids in high schools where we teach kids about these different tools, including chatter advice. And we find that the more they learn about it, the, the better they perform at school. I find it remarkable that we spend so much time in school learning about things that someone has said is important that we don't use that knowledge anymore in our daily lives. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example here. Um, the digestive system. I, I hate to pick on the GI world. Lord knows I owe them plenty. However, if you ask me, like I learned about the digestive system and how it works in middle school and high school and like over and over again. And the one thing I remember about those courses is the process of peristalsis. Do you, do you remember what peristalsis does? I'm showing my okay, ignorance. Okay, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so, so no, this just, this just, for me, this stuck out. Peristalsis is the process that explains how you get food from one opening up, you know, our mouths to another without getting into the gory details. You know, it's that kind of like the the the, the squeezing of of your esophagus and colon and things like that. It pushes the food down. Ask me, how many times have I had occasion to use that knowledge in my adult life? I mean, how many times? Two. Two. Okay. Two. Both <laughs> of my daughters independently asked me when they were little kids, Daddy, 
how do you how do you swallow food when you're upside down? Why doesn't it just come out of your mouth? And I, okay, here you go. Now ask me, how many occasions do I have to use my understanding of emotions mm -hmm. and how to manage them in my everyday life? Every single day. This is not because I'm particularly emotionally dysregulated. It is because we are emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. We are constantly experiencing emotions. So I am calling on that knowledge constantly for myself, as well as for my loved ones, for my teams and employees, my colleagues. And yet, I had no class on this information, on this topic, which is just, to me, mind-boggling. So, so, um, so that's part of why I find this, um, talking about this work so incredibly important. You know, it's obviously not too late to get the science out there. You know, I, I'm so glad you said it because I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, if we could get more information on learning how to control our emotions as children, you know, I, I think back and I've shared this before that, um, I suffered when I was in my late teens, early twenties of quite severe panic attacks. And, you know, again, if this type of information had been available to me back then, my anxiety may never have spiraled to that level. And that's why I think it's it's so important to help help people as young as possible and get these messages out as young as possible. But but I want to kind of bring us back to your third category, if I may, because, of course, we've covered tools that we can use to help ourselves, tools that we can use to help others or others can use to help us. But I'm really interested in tools, um, the environment, how our physical space, and you've touched on that a little bit already um, with decluttering. Um, but I'm really interested in, um, you talk in your book about the importance of nature and green space. Um, and I'm wondering how particularly we can help our work environment. Many of us work from home, Many of us still go into the office a couple of days a week. How can we set up that environment to help us? Um, I, When I started doing research in this space and I came across some work suggesting that enhancing our exposure to green spaces could not just make us feel good, but really help us manage chatter and impact our attention, I was deeply skeptical. I say this is uh, my background is I'm a I'm a city boy through and through, like you know there's a book written about where I come from. Like I'm from Brooklyn. It's called a a tree grows in Brooklyn. Have you ever heard of that book? <laughs> it's like singular a a tree. It's not actually that far off the mark, right? Like I was not surrounded by by greenery growing up, and I just thought this is this is this is nutty. Yet. I've participated in some of this research myself. We've done it in my lab and I've looked at that literature and the data linking exposure to green spaces to positive mental health outcomes and cognitive outcomes is quite remarkable. It is very impressive. Um, what we've learned is that um, small engagements in nature can serve to restore our attention. So our ability to focus is easily depleted and chatter magnifies that problem because one of the reasons why chatter is so problematic from a work point of view is it consumes our focus, leaving very little left over to do the things we often want to need to do at work and in our personal lives. What nature does is it captures our attention. It gently draws it away from our chatter, giving it an opportunity to restore. And that's something that's very valuable. So I will often go for a walk in a green space based on this data I have changed the way I walk to work each day 
to enhance the amount of green space exposure I have. So in terms of practicality here, that's one thing I've done. I, I now it takes me maybe like three minutes longer to get to work, but I go through a more green space, uh, wooded space. Uh, I don't, you can't really see around my office, but I've actually put plants. There are green plants throughout my office. I've changed the view of my desk. So I face out onto a green space. There's research which shows that the more of nature exposure you get, the better it is for you. There does seem to be a dose response. The more immersive the experience, the better. But you could still benefit from glances of green spaces, from looking at pictures, from looking at plants, from even watching videos of, of natural settings. So when we're thinking about how to incorporate these scientific insights into our daily lives, and in particular in the organizational world, there are many, many opportunities to do this, ranging from architecture and building building green spots into, into buildings and facilities to just designing your spaces and being mindful of the power that these little living, breathing things have on us. And so that's one example. I should add that there are other things you can do to maximize the chances of your physical space helping you out from the outside in. This is a couple of uh, two other quick examples, pictures of, of loved ones. Like may sound silly to have a picture of a loved one on, on your desk. We've actually done neuroimaging research where we get people filled with chatter. We do that not to be mean. We have to do it to see how to help them. And, and then we show them an, a picture of a loved one or a, a, what we call an attachment figure. Some of your own, you're emotionally attached to. We find that that repairs, yeah. that turns the volume down on our activity. And this is true even when you have just very brief micro glances for a very short period of time. Those glances of loved ones, they send signals that help turn that chatter down. So pictures of, of loved ones help. Um, and also the final thing I'll mention is images that, uh, that just reminds you about how awe-inspiring the world is. There's been a lot of research on this emotion of awe over the past decade. And, and what we've learned is that when you experience this emotion, and it's an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something that's vast and indescribable. So there are a lot of ways of experiencing awe from the natural world, like a beautiful, um, a beautiful vista. Stonehenge, like, oh my God, how did we, they figure out how to do that kind of stuff? Or, or like the cliffs on the, on the Southern UK, like amazing, right? Um, so you get it from the natural world, but you can also experience that emotion from the human made world. I, I experience awe every single time I think about flying. I'm not fearful of flying. I fly all the time, but I still have a hard time wrapping my head around how we got to struggling to build fires in caves not too long ago to now being able to like blast ourselves off into the sky like birds and safely land around on the other side of the planet. I just, hard for me to fathom how we figure that out. Fills me with awe. What we've learned is when you experience that emotion of awe, it's the ultimate perspective broadener. When you experience awe, it leads to what we call shrinking of the self. You feel smaller when you're contemplating something vast and indescribable. And when you feel smaller, 
So do your problems. So it's this ultimate way of putting things in perspective. And so you can you can try to design your spaces as well to give you those awe feelings. Gosh, and I, what I love about this advice is it really is so practical. It doesn't cost a huge amount of money to put up an image of something that really makes you awestruck, to frame a photograph of a loved one or to scatter a few pot plants around. And I should say, you know, the green space thing, I certainly, I mean, my form of meditation is hiking. I just love getting out into the countryside. And my symbol of happiness is actually on the bookshelf beside me. It's a little sheep. Um, so if, if you want to find out why the sheep is my symbol of happiness, um, episode one of series one with uh, Professor Jan Emanuel Deneve and Karen Guggenheim, I explained that one, but it's very related to my love, my love of the outdoors. Um, I would love to go to what I like to call the rapid fire round. So the idea is top of mind, whatever comes to you and sort of quick answers. So if you had an actual time machine, an actual DeLorean this time, as opposed to your your mental time travel, and if you could travel 30 years into the future, what is the change that you'd like to see in the world? I would like us to stop acting like barbarians, the way we have been acting for as long as we've been roaming the planet. And I'd like to see an end to um, ethno-political conflict in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask you to get back in your time machine and I'm going to ask you to travel backwards and I'd like you to have a conversation with your 21-year-old self. What advice would you give that boy? 21, not not 19, right? You that would change 19. things. You go, go no, back no, I, to I, whatever I'm just, age. I'm just joking. I, I'm just joking <laughs> with you. Um, 21 would be to just, just follow, keep following your intuitions and, um, and doing, trying to do good in the world, period. Um, my, my experience is that with those intentions, good things happen. Out of interest, if you could go back to your 19-year-old self or your 15-year-old self, is there different advice you would give? Talk to more girls. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you met your wife? <laughs> they're, they're very different. 20, that's why I asked about 19. Now I see, now I see. Yes. Um, what do you do daily to improve your own well-being? I, I exercise daily. Um, I make that... I make that uh, a non-negotiable. I uh, I check in with my network, with my with my closest friends and families, uh, family, and I. Um, this will sound corny, but it is true. I make sure to tickle my children. Um, um, yeah, they're they're at the age where that's still permissible. It's not creepy, I assure you, and um, uh, it's just a it's a hefty dose of positivity. So. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. Well, what's the best advice you've ever received? That's a good one. Um, best advice I've ever received is 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 the advice that I would give that I just articulated to my twenty one year old, not the nineteen year old, the twenty one year old, which is, you know, I think if you just do the things that you love and find meaningful, and and I, for, for me, that is trying to improve circumstances for folks, um, everything else seems to fall into place, which isn't to say, you know, in a Pollyanna that there's no stress that surrounds that, but but other things happen that support those endeavors. And I think um, having that kind of 
meaning and value to propel you forward. Um, it, it feels good. It achieves good. And, um, and that was advice that was given to me by, by several people, my dad, um, and, and others throughout my life. And I really do value it. I think that's absolutely wonderful advice. And I think it's, it's a wonderful place to finish a, a really helpful interview. And I just want to thank you so much. Um, you know, again, the tools you've provided are so practical and that's what I love about them. It's really easy to implement them. And, I have to do a bit of a plug for your book because there are so many other tools in it. So I, I could not recommend it more highly. So thank you so much, Ethan. Well, thank you again for having me on. Thank you for doing what you do. And, um, and I hope we get a chance to talk again in the future.